At this time, I would like to invite our guest preacher this morning to come up, Wes Van Fleet. Let me tell you a little bit about Wes. We met on Twitter or Instagram five or six years ago, and so have exchanged messages, and you know, he's been a source of encouragement to me. He's married to Jen for, they've been married for 10 years, and I think you have an 11th anniversary coming up in two weeks from today, maybe? Yeah, you better check that watch, yes. Two weeks from today, they have two very cute, adorable uh, daughters, Olivia and Hadley. And Wes uh, is the pastor of discipleship and leadership development at Kaleo Church in El Cajon, California. He is a graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary, is a veteran of the U.S. Army. He brought a friend from his church with him today, Fadi. Fadi, would you stand up so people can see you? Sorry. Say hello and welcome him. Uh, if you see him today, both of them, uh, welcome them uh, with the love of Christ. Wes has written two books, one father, titled Father of Lights, Daily Meditations on Scripture for New Dads. He's also written a commentary on the book of Revelation, which he graciously sent to me several years ago. It's, if it's not the best, it's one of the best commentaries I've ever read on the book of Revelation. Not only does he unpack and explain the text, which is important, what I love what De West does throughout this is he continually reminds you as you read that you have a Savior who loves you and shed his blood to forgive you of your sins. And so over and over again, the gospel just kind of drips out of this book, but then he also turns your eyes to your risen, resurrected, glorified Savior who walks among his churches in triumph and victory. And so as you read it, if you're worried about the state of affairs in the world and in our country, if you read this, you will come away thinking, I trust Jesus. He's in control. This world is not in control. These leaders are not in control. Jesus Christ is in control. And so you can pick up both of those books on Amazon. So Wes, thank you. Let me pray for you. Father, we pray for Wes this morning, you would fill him with your spirit, that he would turn our eyes to Jesus, that we would just soak in the gospel this morning, Lord, that it would settle into our hearts and it would cause us to go out as lights into this fallen world. Bless him now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. One of my favorite passages to apply in scripture is... Uh, Romans 12, 10, and outdoing one another in honor. And I think uh, Pastor Benji just won that battle. But I do want to say, uh, before I pray and get into the word a bit, uh, coming to a church like this that you've never been is often uh, mixed with joy and anticipation and also nervousness and unsurety. Uh, and I just want to say, going to the, the missions prayer night last night, uh, was highly humbling, uh, and I feel coming here this morning to, to preach about this one God, this one mission, this one family, and this one day, uh, I'm highly insufficient for it. Many of those missionaries that you guys support and some that are here uh, have far more to say, I think, than I do, but so be it. This is the time the Lord has given, so let me pray, and we'll get into his word. Father, we are thankful that you are highly involved in human history, 
Lord, that you created this world not out of necessity, but out of love. God, you created this world so your own creation could find the joy they were created to find in you. And, O Lord, although your people, generation after generation, have exchanged the truth for a lie, you, in your great love and mercy, sent your Son. And if that were not enough to send him as the exact imprint of your nature, the one who makes known the Father to us, we crucified him. And yet, Lord, you cannot be silenced. Your son rose victoriously, ascended to the right hand, sent the Spirit so that we, those who were forgiven of sins, could be sent on this mission to the world, to all nations. Oh Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you come today? Would you glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you lift him up? Would you help us to see our identity as kingdom of priests that are in him that get the great privilege to talk about the good news with those in our city and across the earth. Be with us, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the main rhythms of the people of God throughout human history has always been feasting. Now, if you're anything like me, the, the tastes of different foods often leads to Praise the God who, in all of his infinite knowledge, gave us taste buds. He could have created us to eat purely for fuel and just for energy, but he saw it in his grand creation to give us these little things that can delight and taste all of these different ingredients. Whether it's the sizzling and seasoned carne asada from San Diego, the East Texas barbecue brisket, the ramen and yakimandu of South Korea, or the balani from Afghanistan, God in his grace has created a myriad of flavorful creations all around the globe. To be honest, this brings me great joy. But I think to better understand why feasting is such an incredible thing, I think we have to back up towards the beginning of human history. And by doing that, we will see that feasting has always been and always will be a part of being associated with God, with Yahweh, this one God, in his mission in creating a family that would one day feast with his son face to face. So to see this, we're actually going to fly over human history and look at some of the most memorable times where God has feasted with his people. This may seem strange. Why are we having a sermon about food? Seems very strange. Well, we, we need to eat food many times a day for some of us. You're going to eat after the service. We are a feasting people. And I want to show by looking at all of redemptive history that God cares deeply about feasting with his people. Now, one of the first and most important meals in all of God's story is found in the book of Exodus. Now prior to the Exodus, God had made this important covenant with Abraham, promising to make Abraham this great nation. And then as we turn to Exodus, we find that the people of God have indeed multiplied. They have become a great nation. 
However, what we find is there's a twist. We read that they're enslaved to the Egyptians, and their self-proclaimed god named Pharaoh is ruling over them. As God's people continue to cry out year after year to Yahweh, this one God, we are told that he hears them and he sees them. He remembers his covenant with Abraham and he is ready to act powerfully on their behalf. Now in Egypt, in all the surrounding nations, there was a plethora of gods. There was a sun god, there was a harvest god, there was a fertility god, you name it, and they had a god for it. And part of God's redeeming and rescuing acts throughout the book of Exodus is this revelation that he and he alone is God. He alone rules and reigns supreme. And part of his mission to the world is to demonstrate in this culture full of gods that he and he alone should be worshipped. Now, as one continues reading through the book of Exodus, all of a sudden these plagues start making their way into Egypt, and it's a way of starting to force Pharaoh and all of the people of Egypt to see that there is one more powerful than their make-believe gods. And as these plagues unfold, one is supposed to conclude that Pharaoh and all of their gods are having their masks ripped off and are being exposed to have no power whatsoever. In fact, as Pharaoh is experiencing plague after plague and starts to realize he is dependent upon God himself, Yahweh is putting Pharaoh in his place act after act and showing that he is the supreme ruler over even Pharaoh. And in God's powerful care for them, God hears the cries of his people, and he acts. He promises to rescue his people, but to rescue them, he he wants them to take part in this covenant meal, a feast of sorts. It's a meal that's tied to the salvation and to the judgment of all nations, and it's it's a meal that would come at the cost of the firstborn in all of the land who would not obey him as the one God. We see this in Exodus 12, 4 through 5. Moses writes, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Attached to this slain of the firstborn, Yahweh gives the people a way of salvation that is also tied to this covenant meal. They're told in Exodus 12 to, to find a lamb without blemish and to, to sacrifice it. We read of this in Exodus 12, 11 through 13. It says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this may be familiar for some of you, but I want you to just imagine you're there for a moment. Imagine that God has heard your prayers. He's waging wars through these, through these plagues to these pseudo-gods of Egypt, and he's rescuing his people by the simple act of the sacrifice of a lamb and putting it on your home. But part of his people's role in this whole Passover situation is to eat. Eat and be ready to move because God is coming to deliver you. And he does. He rescues his people out of slavery, powerfully demonstrates he is who he says he is, and brings them out of slavery into freedom under his loving care and provision. He is the one God truly of all of the universe. A little bit later in Exodus, we see God's people. Now they're, they're wandering through the desert. They start to complain about not having enough water, not having enough food, complaining against this mighty, powerful God who just demonstrated very clearly he is who he says he is. Well, the Lord ushers them to Mount Sinai. And in his grace, God gives them this law, and he enters into a covenant with them. And this law was not meant merely to enslave them, but to set them free, to put boundaries around them so they could live a life of freedom, unlike the cultures around them. Well, the people of, Gre people of God, they, they agree, and it's okay to, to giggle at this part, they agree to do all that the Lord commanded. They're at the bottom of the mountain. He says, you will do this, you will do this. And they say, yes, we will. We know how the story goes. But then we read a couple chapters later in Exodus 24, 9 through 11, about this beautiful scene and this feast. Listen to this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement, a sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So, so far we're already seeing in Exodus, God continues to attach this feasting, this, this meal with his covenant, when he rescues and saves the people, simply enough, he wants them to eat. And beholding the glory of God and feasting in his presence, I will argue, is what we were created to do. And we're going to usher our way that way right now. Now, one aside that's really important is in the ancient Near East, where all these cultures were, where Egypt and Babylon and all these surrounding nations, to be invited to a feast was not just an invite to fill one's belly. It was actually an outward and visible act of association. It was basically saying, if you look at the people around my table, those who I have invited and those who are eating with me, these are my people. 
This is my family. I vouch for them. We'll see this teased out a little bit more later on. But for now, I want to I move forward a bit and make sure we don't stay in Exodus all morning. If we look forward to Psalm 23, we will see a, a psalm that not only most of us are familiar with, but I am going to argue that we may not be so familiar with the feast that takes place. In Psalm 23, most, most scholars agree that this was towards the end of David's life. So David's an older man. He's experienced great acts of redemption. He's gone through his own personal sin and repentance. He's seen the consequences of being a king that needs God to be in his life. And he pens this psalm that's telling about God as his shepherd. God has been present with him, he says, in the green pastures, but he's also been present with David in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, in verse 5 of Psalm 23, David makes a pretty stunning claim. He writes, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with the oil. My cup overflows. Now, when I was in the army, there were many times that eating was not a necessity. It's something you wanted to do, but sometimes you didn't get to do. I can remember multiple times in the middle of firefights where hours and hours go by and you start to think, I haven't eaten in eight hours. I haven't eaten in ten hours. And you're longing to eat. You just hope you will eventually get to eat. Well, here, David is communicating this scene where he's surrounded by enemies, but God comes and he sets up a feast with good food and good wine for David. I almost envision it as a Matrix-like scene where the, the camera's zoomed in on David and it, the clarity's perfect and he's enjoying a meal and feasting in the presence of his God and the, the background's sort of blurry, but you can see warriors fighting all behind him and David, as a contrast, is at peace because he is with the God who is there with him, who is near to him and has set up this feast for him. Either way, the contrast is clear. While enemies believe they are encroaching on David, he's content and he's safe feasting with his God. In fact, his feasting, I would argue, is a form of warfare against the enemies. By eating in the midst of his enemies, in the midst of danger surrounding him, David is clutching the cup that overflows and laughs with God at his enemies knowing that his shepherd God will have the final victory. And one of the coolest things is, you guys, that this isn't reserved for kings like David. This kind of feasting with God himself is for all who are associated with his son. Anyone who is attached to and associated with the Lord Jesus Christ gets to feast with God. About this being an act of warfare, Kelly Keller writes this. She says, no doubt you have been at a feast that was an act of war. Perhaps you didn't realize it at the time, but you have. 
Anytime you sit at a table with those who share your conviction that Jesus is returning, you declare war on the lies of this world, this mixed up, passing away, broken world. You reinstate the truth of creation, joy, and all things being made new. So all these historical instances so far we've looked at of of these people of God and the feasting were actually meant all along to be this moment-by-moment expectation of hope. This taking all these things we say we believe about this one God who has revealed himself to us and looking out into the day where faith will finally become sight. And these, these feasts and these promises, they, they were ordinary because they're regular food, they're regular wine, they're real people at real tables awaiting the day where they would actually feast with this one God face to face. But as we continue through redemptive history, we see that Israel found themselves in exile because they failed to worship their God as the one God. They failed to keep their mission by taking this light they have to the nations. And they find themselves fighting not to associate with pagan kings and their feasts. In fact, if you look at the book of Daniel, a lot of people look where Daniel doesn't want to eat the king's food as like this kind of prescriptive diet, but it's actually Daniel saying, I will not associate with a pagan king. I worship the one king, and so you can give me vegetables or whatever else for the next 10 days, and I will be better off because my life is attached to the one true God. The years continue after the exile, and it seemed like God had stopped listening to his people. It seemed like he stopped speaking as well. We have what's often called the 400 years of silence. Generation comes, generation goes, wondering where is this one God? Until the silence is broken one evening by the cry of a little baby boy. In the darkness light is born and light shines and he cries like other babies. He had to learn to walk and talk like other children and was living in a world where people were longing to hear God's voice once again. And as this child grew, he became strong and filled with wisdom, Luke tells us. This was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one God who had taken on flesh. And as we read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, we find that Jesus loved to feast with people. He loved it. In fact, one of the scandalous parts of his public ministry was that he was willing to eat day after day with sinners, to be associated at the same table with those who were the outcasts of society and were looked down upon. At a cultural level, this would have raised a lot of questions in the heads of the religious elite. And not only because he was willing to eat and feast with them, but he went far enough to call them his friends. We see the Pharisees got really uptight about this. So they ask him in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They think that they're, they're charging him against his holiness and whatever he's saying he is and about who he is. But listen to his response in verses 31 and 32. 
He looks at the Pharisee dead in his eyes. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is making clear that his mission was to heal the sick and bring them into the family of God. That his, his whole purpose of coming to this world was to reveal who his father was, to, of course, bring about acts of redemption, but it was to be very personal, to sit across the table, eat the same food, look at them eye to eye, and bring those who were far off near into his own family. And as you continue reading Luke, you actually find Luke structures his whole gospel around food. I don't have time to show you all of them, but we'll look at a few. And I want you, again, to invite you to, to turn on the imagination a bit. Pretend you're in these places, in these stories I'm going to share with you. In Luke 22, we get this privilege of walking in to this rented room where Jesus would share the Passover feast with his disciples. Now, the significance couldn't be deeper as Jesus would look back on the innocent lamb being slain and its blood being painted on the homes of God's people for deliverance from Egypt. Knowing that hours later, the reality of what the Passover had always pointed towards would find its fulfillment in him hours later as he became the Passover lamb that hung on the cross to forgive their sins and to deliver them from slavery to sin and into the freedom of his loving care. Imagine year after year after years the Jewish people celebrating this Passover feast, Jesus knowing the weight and significance of it. If, if you're like me, in those moments where you feel like something big is coming, you, you get sick to your stomach, you're not sure how you're going to survive, you're thinking and replaying things in your head, the Son of God in the flesh at a Passover feast, rather than getting sick and leaving the room, wants to encourage his disciples about the mission that is coming for them. He's preparing them to continue his mission to spread the good news to the weak through feasting. He says, I've set the model. I've feasted with you. I've feasted with sinners. I'm going to go suffer now. I'm going to rise again. And after that, guess what? All of you, it's your turn. It's your turn to continue this mission. Listen to Jesus' heart here. And knowing that he's about to be falsely arrested, I, I just can't imagine the selflessness of these words. In Luke twenty-two fifteen through 16, Jesus reveals his heart towards them when he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. As Jesus tears the bread and passes the cup, he looks into the eyes of his disciples to communicate two major realities in God's mission to make a family. First, he's communicating he will suffer. His body will be torn just like the bread, and his blood will flow just like the wine. But second, he's, he's helping them to look even beyond that day forward to this future day 
this single day where the kingdom of God will come to earth in its fullness. He's saying it, it, it came part with him like in Mark when he says the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom began with Jesus' first coming and it will come again in its fullness in the new heavens and new earth at his second. And in between those two realities, catch this, Jesus will abstain from this meal as he himself fasts while his disciples will be sent to continue his mission from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The gospel has so gripped his heart that he is so pleased within himself and all that he is doing that he knows that the greatest joy his disciples could experience is the Lord Jesus himself sending them. Unfortunately, like Israel, and to be honest, a lot like us, the disciples didn't really catch what Jesus was laying down. In their minds, there was no way a Messiah could suffer. Right? He came to set up his kingdom and rule over Rome. Yet hours later, they watched as their Messiah and friend was falsely arrested, condemned under a false trial with false witnesses, and nailed to a Roman cross for all to see. The true Passover took place as the innocent lamb of God's blood became the once for all payment for sin and redemption and for all who would look to the lamb. It looked like God's mission had come to an end in the eyes of the disciples. Sadly, the disciples ran for their lives as their friend and Messiah breathed his last breath on that cross. But even as we sang in the reckless love song, the mission of God, is, as messy as it often looks from our own perspective, is driven by the calculated plan of God himself. And behind that calculated plan is the heart and love of God for the nations, as he has more plan than the disciples could be ready for. Three days later, a couple of disciples, they're walking on a road. They're, they're super bummed about everything that happened. And in Luke 24, we see it's one of the most beautiful, compassionate scenes in all of Scripture. The Lord Jesus is walking with these two disciples. They don't recognize him. And they actually ask him, they say, are you the only one who doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem? And this resurrected Christ, he, he knows he has the scars in his hands that will bear for eternity. He has the, the memory of what it was to breathe his last. And as he walks, he doesn't correct them and say, I told you I'd suffer. Weren't you listening? But no, because he loves his disciples. He, he listens. And he lets them continue to moan and groan. And then he comes and he corrects them from the scriptures. He shows them how the entirety of the Old Testament was about him, that they should have known he would suffer because Israel's scriptures were their scriptures, and it talked about this, it foretold of it. But guess what he does next? I find this fascinating. He has this Bible study with them, and you would think, okay, he's going to demonstrate some crazy, powerful thing. He's going to start zapping all the Jews who didn't believe. He's going to flex his muscles. No. He feasts with them. 
Luke 24, 30 through 32 tells us, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. It's like the second, oh, I know who he is. He's gone. But listen what they said to each other. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Like Moses, the disciples have beheld God, but here they're beholding God in the flesh, resurrected from the dead, and in his grace, he chose to do this around a table. And as they feast with Jesus, their eyes are opened and their hearts burn within them because the glory that Moses once beheld exists fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as they eat that bread and they they drink the wine, they're realizing they, these sinners who ran from him, denied him, they're associated with Jesus. That they are united to him by faith that he, as a resurrected king of kings, sat them down at a table and was saying, You're my friends. You're associated with me. And this would change absolutely everything. A couple weeks later, they're huddled in a room and we read through Acts and even the epistles that Jesus himself sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of this one God, to dwell in these believers and to empower them for God's mission. Not just to Israel, but to Gentiles across the whole world. And Jesus was using failures like us. People who still doubt if God is even real. People who doubt if the Holy Spirit even dwells in us. To open our mouths so feebly and show that in our weakness, His power brings people from every tribe, nation, and tongue into His family. And one of the regular rhythms that the family of God receives and enjoys under all the things Jesus could have done and give to his church is through the Lord's Supper. Every time followers of Jesus gather and receive the Lord's Supper, we're being reminded that we are associated and united to Jesus and his death and resurrection. It is a feast. It is, it's a feast that is supposed to visually proclaim to us the good news, but it's an actual feast that we can taste and touch and swallow. And as surely as we taste and touch and swallow and as it goes down into our stomach, so surely we can be positive that we are associated with the Lord Jesus Christ who gave us this meal as a means of remembrance. And one of my favorite lines uh, that, that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 11 at the very end of the Lord's Supper, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he has in mind all that Jesus did on the cross, but he's also trying to point the disciples' eyes and our eyes forward to that future day when Jesus will no longer be fasting from this meal, but will come and enjoy it with us again. Grace Church, the Lord Jesus has included you in his family. I mean, think about that. you're, You're a family member of the risen King of Kings. And yet, 
as he has included you in this mission to Santa Maria and to the end of the nations, he's proclaiming to you he is with you by his spirit in this mission. You are not alone. You're not any different than the disciples. You're weak and needy, and he loves to demonstrate his power through your weakness. And yet, it's clear we are in a time of waiting. We're, we're in between these comings and we await this day when he returns and we will sit around a table much like we'll do this afternoon and that day his mission will actually be completed. Mission will be wiped off the table for us. So we live in this very important time where we get this privilege to be this these people, these jars of clay that carry around this treasure, this good news of the gospel and get to declare it and share it because it's coming to an end. And one of the ways we do this is by remembering through our daily feasting, we will one day feast with him face to face. Revelation 19, we get this gracious glimpse of what that day will be like. It doesn't give us all the details, but it gives us just enough of a taste to know what to expect. And it's about a day that is coming where we ourselves will be invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb. That the Lord Jesus Christ will, will host this banquet. He will sit at the table with his family and celebrate this kingdom in its fullness of people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. And we will enjoy that by feasting. In my opinion, it will be a day of taste bud overload. It will be where we are starting to smell and taste and see all of the things from all the different nations, all of the different colors, all of the different cultures, all of the different art. We will have an eternity to try to take it in, and we will never get tired of trying. And even better, all of those great gifts, as we see all the different kinds of people and foods and smells and colors and cultures... Our hearts will move and burn within us as all of those things will rightly point to the one who created them and redeemed them. And we will worship the lamb that was slain. People from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue won't just enjoy the gifts. Their arms will be raised. Our voices will scream out. And like Benji said, we will freak out at the fact that we are in the presence of the lamb. With all this in mind, I have a closing question. How do we go about living as God's family on God's mission until that day? How do we go about living as God's family on God's mission until that day? Well, if we go back to the verse that this conference and this morning is based on in Deuteronomy 6, with this grand narrative of feasting in mind, I think we can find at least a somewhat simple application, a simple way to apply these things. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. At the heart of this passage, Moses is simply saying this. Love the Lord your God above all else. And when he takes dominance over your heart, when you submit yourself and give all of your love and affection to him, you will notice that the good news of the gospel starts to permeate every area of your life. We don't need more formal ministries to talk about God, according to Deuteronomy. No, it's saying when, when you walk with your, with your children to school, pay attention to what is happening. What are they talking about? What are they watching? What are their fears? Apply the gospel to them in that moment. Rejoice in who he is and what he has done. When it's time to eat a meal, invite someone, maybe someone you wouldn't normally invite, to come associate with you and your family and love them the way God first loved you. From morning to night, bring gospel intentionality to all the areas of your life. Be paying attention. How can I remind this person, myself, and my neighbors about the good news of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished? From morning to night, we wake up, we enjoy God's glory in drinking coffee. We teach our kids to do their schoolwork and to play to God's glory. And because of the good news of the gospel, Jesus has truly raised. He is coming again. We can lay our heads on our pillows at night and rest believing the good news that he will come. And we do that even in our sleep to his glory. So to close, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you care deeply about your creation. Father, we thank you that you created a diverse creation, that there are people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue that bear your image. And in your great grace, O oh Lord, you sent your Son to feast with sinners, to associate with them, to pay their debts, to take up your life victoriously. And if that were not enough, O oh Lord, you sent your Spirit to dwell in us, your people, to empower us with the good news of the gospel for ordinary, daily mission that one day will come to an end and we will sit around your table, O oh Lord, worshiping the Lamb that was slain with people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. O oh Lord, your plan is so glorious, it is so beautiful, and so help us, empower us even today to rest in the good news of the gospel, but let that gospel drive us to glad mission for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.